Today, we're going to continue in our series, So. And as you know, this has been a series that's really an inquiry of Christian beliefs. And we've discussed questions like, why did Jesus have to die? Uh, what is hell like? And while we're at it, what is heaven like? And today we're going to get, go to the question of what is the Bible, which I think is a good question. And as I look out at here, I think many of you are familiar with the Bible because you probably have one. Your friends probably have one. I would say in America, getting access to a Bible is pretty easy. Pretty easy. Just go to almost any hotel, open the drawer, and thank you, Gideons, for giving me a Bible. The Guinness Book of World Records declared this. Although it is impossible to obtain exact figures, there's little doubt the Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book. And they also said a survey of the Bible Society concluded that around 2.5 billion copies were printed between 1815 and 1975, but more recent estimates put that number at more than 5 billion Bibles. That's B, as in billions. That's a lot of Bibles. They also estimate that the full Bible, the full complete Bible, has been translated into over 670 languages. The word Bible is Greek, and it means the books. And these books are a collection of sacred texts. We sometimes call them scriptures that Jews and Christians consider to be a product of divine inspiration and a record of the relationship between God and humans. The Bible says in Psalm 119, His word is a lamp unto your feet. It is a light unto your path. And friends, I believe this verse means that God speaks, that he has a voice, which is why Israel loved the Scripture, and the Bible is one of the ways that we can hear from God. So let me ask you, is the Bible inspired by God? A Gallup survey showed that 49% of Americans say the Bible is the inspired word of God. But what does that mean? Did God actually dictate the exact words that he wanted to the authors to write the Bible word for word? Kind of like a light beaming from heaven directly into someone's brain. Or did God inspire the authors in such a way that they produced the words that God wanted, but they were still able to write it in a way that was consistent with their individual backgrounds, their personality traits, and their literary styles? Or were the authors of Scripture merely wise men and women? So the Bible is, in essence, inspired by advanced human insight, and it has nothing to do with God. Here's the view of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church holds the Bible as inspired by God, but does not view God as the direct author of the Bible, in the sense that he does not put a ready-made book in the mind of the inspired person. Pope Benedict XVI gave the following explanation. He said, The Scripture emerged from within the heart of a living subject, the pilgrim people of God, and lives within the same subject. The individual author or group of authors are not autonomous. They form part of the people of God, the deeper author of the scriptures. Likewise, this people knows that it is led and spoken to by God himself, who through men and their humanity is at the deepest level, the one speaking. 
Okay, that's the Roman Catholic slide. Let's go Protestant. Martin Luther, he held that they, the Scriptures, were not dictated by the Holy Spirit, but that his illumination produced in the minds of the writers the knowledge of salvation, so that divine truth had been expressed in human form, and the knowledge of God had become a personal possession of man. The actual writing was a human, not a supernatural act. Since we're doing a talk on the Bible, let's see what the Bible might say. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You probably know this verse. And in this verse, verse 16, the word God-breathed comes from the Greek word theopanustos. And this is a rare word found nowhere else in the Bible but this verse. It is actually two Greek words attached together. The word theos means God, and the word panu means breathing. So scripture here, according to the apostle, to the apostle Paul, is God-breathed. He is saying that the Bible is made up of books, but they're more than just books. They're useful, and God uses these writings to help us to do good in the world. You see, the Bible is a library of books written by people who are talking about events unfolding in actual human history. history. And they believe, these authors, that there is a real God who is up to something in this world and who shows us what redemption looks like and gives us hope. And what they're interested in, these authors, their focus is for the readers to see this movement and join it and find life in it and do what they can to make a difference, to bring light to this world. The theologian N.T. Wright says that it's helpful to think about the story of the Bible like a play. It has a trajectory, and you can divide it into five acts. And it is important to know what the acts are and where you belong in the story. Act one is creation. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2 where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is why stuff is here. That is why stuff is good. That is why we have beautiful days. And the sense that you have that it is good to be alive is true. Life is good and God made it. But that's not the whole story. Act 2 is the fall. Act 2 runs throughout most of the Bible. But we find it particularly in Genesis 3. Because of the fall, oppression Violence and injustice flood into our world. Marriage gets messed up. Adam and Eve begin to fight. The institution of the family is corrupted, and Cain kills his brother, Abel. Act 2 tells us that things on earth are not the way they're supposed to be. And there's a reason why things are messed up. And it's not primarily because of ignorance or lack of progress. The world is broken because of what has happened to the human heart where we miss the mark, where we reject God. This is what we learn in Act 2. Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. 
In this verse, he creates questions like, how is God going to deal with his grief? How will he deal with the tragedy of the fall? And will the story end in hopelessness? And that takes us to Act 3. Act 3 begins with the little country of Israel. God has not given up on the story. He takes a man named Abram and changes his name to Abraham. God tells Abraham he will be the father of many nations. This is an important part of the story. This part of the story does not tell us that God loves Israel more than anybody else. God says that all people on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God starts with one little group and makes a covenant saying, I will be your God. So you may ask, we're talking about the Bible. We've gone through Act 1, Act 2, and now here we are in Act 3. When did the Old Testament of the Bible first get written? Well, Christian tradition argues that Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And the early Christian fathers from the 200s, 300s, 400s, they would agree with that. But get this, modern scholars may differ or say that there is more to the story. Some would argue that the Old Testament of our Bible was created from a crisis of faith. And while those scholars recognize that many of the Bible stories, the Proverbs and the poems were undoubtedly passed down through oral tradition, these scholars believe that the writing and compilation of most of the Hebrew Scripture began during the reign of King David and gained momentum during the Babylonian invasion of Judah and in the wake of the Babylonian exile when Israel was occupied by that mighty pagan empire. And one cannot overstate the trauma of this exile. You see, the people of Israel once boasted a king, a temple, and a great expanse of land, all of which they believed had been given to them by God, and it was ensured to them forever. But in the 6th century B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, destroying both the city and its temple. And many of the Jews who lived there were taken captive and forced into the Babylonian Empire service. Some Jews remained near Jerusalem, but without a king, without a place of worship, and without a national identity. Some scholars believe that this catastrophic event threw everything the people of Israel believed about themselves and about their God into question. Many assumed their collective sins were to blame and that with repentance, their honor might be restored. And others feared that God had abandoned them completely. So, Jewish scribes got to work, pulling together centuries of oral and written material and adding reflections on their own as they wrestled through this national crisis of faith. And here's the question that they wrestled with. If the people of Israel no longer had their own land, their own king, or their own temple, what did they have? They had their stories. They had their songs. They had their traditions and law. They had the promise that the God who set all of creation in order who told Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars, who rescued the Hebrews from slavery, who spoke to them from Mount Sinai, and who turned a shepherd boy into a king, would remain present with them no matter what. This God would be faithful. And contrary to what many of us have been told about the Bible, 
Israel's stories, the Old Testament, it wasn't designed to answer scientific 21st century questions about the beginning of the universe or the biological evolution of human beings. But rather, it was meant to answer then-pressing ancient questions about the nature of God and God's relationship to creation. Even the story of Adam and Eve found in Genesis 2 and 3 is thought by many, stories, by many scholars to be less a story about human origins and more a story about Israel's origins, a symbolic representation of Israel's pattern of habitation, disobedience, and exile set in primeval time. And one cannot seriously engage the stories of the Torah, you know, the first five books of the Bible, without encountering ancient and foreign assumptions about the nature of reality. Get this. The first creation account of Genesis 1, for example, presumes the existence of a firmament. Imagine this, a vast dome in which the stars and the moon were fixed, believed by the Hebrews and their ancient neighbors to keep great cascades of water above the earth from crashing into the land below. And Jewish scribes who compiled the Hebrew scripture shared a conceptual world with their neighbors and used similar literary genres and stories of the culture around them to address issues of identity and purpose. Think of Noah and the worldwide flood. I've always thought this was such an incredible and original story. But here's the thing. The story of Noah and the ark that we find in our scripture is very similar to the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh, which dates back to nearly 5,000 years B.C., and it is thought to be the oldest written tale on the planet, and scholars believe that it was likely written before the Noah story. But the authors of the Bible did make one twist. In the epic of Gilgamesh, the gods are angry and unleash divine wrath in the form of a flood. But with the Noah story, it ends with the divine insistence that this is never going to happen again. And God brings a rainbow and then he makes a covenant with Noah, a covenant and a relational bond between two people. According to Peter Enns, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of Genesis to expect it to answer questions generated by a modern worldview, such as whether the days were literal or figurative, or whether the days of creation can be lined up with modern science, or whether the flood was local or universal. The question that Genesis is prepared to answer is whether Yahweh, the God of Israel, is worthy of worship. While the circumstances of the exiled Israelites may seem far removed from us today, the questions raised by the national Christ of faith remain as pressing as ever. Why do bad things happen to good people? What does it mean to be chosen by God? Is God faithful? Is God present? Is God good? And rather than answering these questions and propositions, the Spirit spoke the language of stories, quickening the memories of prophets and the pens of scribes to call a lost and searching people to gather together and to remember. This collective remembering produced the Old Testament as we know it and explains why it looks the way it does. Foreign yet familiar, sacred, yet indelibly smudged with human fingerprints. 
The Bible's original readers may not share our culture, but they share our humanity. And the God they worship invited them to bring that humanity to their theology, their prayers, their, their songs, and their stories. Yet, many people may ask and wonder, what is up with the Bible and all the rules, all the laws? Last year, Tammy and I took, gar- uh, took Garden to Garden with Danielle. It was a great course. I encourage you to take it. Uh, it's, a, it's a plan. Help me out to read the Bible in five, in five months. Yes, it can be done. But early in our readings, we got to the book of Exodus, and we quickly learned that the Old Testament is full of laws. I mean, full of laws. And, and honestly, this section of the Bible wasn't a lot of fun to read. You know, something like this. If a man's oxen injures the bull of another and it dies, they are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the oxen had the habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it pinned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and the dead animal will be his. Amen. You've had this problem. Christians have long struggled with exactly how to interpret and receive what is commonly referred to as the law of Hebrew Scripture. In fact, almost a third of the first five books of the Bible consist of these laws which cover everything from crime to property to sexual behavior to holidays. And the early rabbis counted 613 commands. Here's the interesting thing. For the Jewish people, the law is God's gift, given as a sign of God's special covenant relationship with them. Christians, on the other hand, we have a rockier relationship with the Old Testament law. We don't think of the law as liberating. But for the people of Israel, these divine instructions help to forge a unique national identity one wholly distinct from the cultures around them, including the Egyptian empire that for so long oppressed them. It reminded them that the God who parted the Red Sea and conquered Pharaoh's armies was sticking around for the long haul. This is not a God who liberates and then leaves. This is a God who walks with people through the desert in a cloud of smoke and fire and who literally sets up camp with them in the form of a traveling tabernacle. This is a God who cares about every detail of their new life together, right down to the management of their oxen. The law taught the Israelites how to rest on the Sabbath, how to treat immigrants with compassion, and to celebrate their deliverance story through rituals and holidays. It called them to worship one God, denouncing all forms of idolatry, and to honor that God with a community characterized by order and neighborliness. In an ancient world that often celebrated violent indulgence, the law offered a sense of stability and moral purpose. For example, the famous line from Leviticus 24.20, it says, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm sure most of you have heard this, this verse. And this may sound to you somewhat barbaric, an endorsement of revenge, but within its cultural context, this law of retaliation represented a deliberate move away from the excessive punishment allowed in other tribes by limiting retaliatory action to judicious in-kind responses. 
In other words, you can demand restitution for your loss, but more, this is about justice, not about revenge. And Jesus made it clear that he did not come to abolish the laws of the Torah. Matthew 5, verse 17 says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The life and teaching of Jesus then embodies all that these laws were intended to be. Jesus is what the living, breathing will of God looks like. This includes compassion for the poor, esteem for women, healing for the sick, and solidarity with the suffering. It means breaking bread with outcasts and embracing little children. It means choosing forgiveness over retribution and the cross over revenge. When Jesus was challenged by the experts on the law to give an answer for what Scripture is all about, he offered a very straightforward, very Jewish response. Quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest, and greatest command. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, to love God is to honor God and to keep God's commandments. Act four is Jesus' ministry on earth. When Jesus began his ministry, he used the phrase, the time is fulfilled. What does this mean? It means that everything God has been doing in the previous acts has been leading to Jesus. Jesus is the climax. After Jesus' resurrection, he's talking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke writes this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, the word, is, the word all is important. The idea is not that Jesus talked about a few messianic predictions. Jesus explained to them that everything in the Old Testament led to his life and ministry. The whole story is about him. So do you get what Jesus is saying? Everything. The whole story, creation, the fall, the chosen nation of Israel finally makes sense in light of Jesus. The books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often referred to as the synoptic gospels, tell the story of Jesus through spiritual biography, drawing from eyewitness accounts, existing source material, and the author's own memories to recall what Jesus did and what he taught. And then we come to the book of John, which tells the story of adding new accounts and making larger theological points about the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the book of Acts describes the impact the good news had on thousands of people living, on, living in communities around the Mediterranean, and in particular on Paul, a devout Jew who initially sought to suppress the Christian movement. But then Paul had a dramatic conversion experience. And he became a critical advocate for the inclusion of Gentiles in God's redemption story. When Jesus talks about the good news, he frames it in primarily in terms of the kingdom of God. And T. Wright explains that God's kingdom in the preaching of Jesus refers not to a post-mortem destiny, not to escape from this world into another one, but God's sovereign rule coming on earth 
as it is in heaven. What this precisely mean, what, what this means precisely remains something of a mystery for Jesus' favorite way to speak about the kingdom is through story, riddle, and metaphor. Jesus would say something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Or this. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Here's the thing. The kingdom Jesus taught is right here. Present yet hidden. Imminent yet transcendent. Now and not yet. The kingdom of heaven, he said, belongs to the poor, the meek, the peacemakers, the merciful, and those who hunger and thirst for God. In this kingdom, many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. This is a kingdom whose Savior arrives not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Not through triumph and conquest, but through death and resurrection. And there is nothing Jesus talked about more than the kingdom. And yet, you would never know it from the way many Christians talk about the gospel. Some people say that Jesus came to die, referring to a view of Christianity that reduces the gospel to a transaction where God needed a spotless sacrifice to atone for the world's sins. And so God sacrificed Jesus on the cross so that believers could go to heaven. And for many, Jesus' life and his teachings make for an interesting backstory but prove largely irrelevant to the work of salvation. Dallas Willard called this the gospel of sin management, which produces vampire Christians. That's my favorite phrase this last week. Vampire Christians who want Jesus for his blood and little else. Friends, as Rachel Held Evans says in her new book, Inspired, Jesus didn't just come to die. Jesus came to live, to teach, to heal, to tell stories, to touch people who weren't supposed to be touched, to eat with people who weren't supposed to be eaten with, to break bread, to pour wine, to wash feet, to fulfill scripture, to forgive, to announce the start of a brand new kingdom, to show what the kingdom is like, to show what God is like, to love his enemies to the point of death at their hands, and to beat death by rising from the grave. You see, Jesus did not simply die to save us from our sins. Jesus lived to save us from our sins. And sometimes the way of Jesus is challenging. Sometimes the way of Jesus forces you to confront your privilege, your pride, or your lack of imagination for how the Holy Spirit can work in your life. This leads us to Act 5, which focused on the church. Jesus ascends to the Father. He sends his spirit and he sends his followers out on a, out on a mission to the whole world to pro- proclaim the good news of God's redemption and God's love for humanity. These people, the ones who went out to proclaim the gospel, loved the Old Testament. They knew how to properly interpret Acts 1 through 4 and they realized their place in Act 5. There are 27 books in the New Testament. And 22 of these books aren't actually books. They are letters, or what we call in church speak, epistles. 
Now, of course, the authors did not consider their letters Scripture at the time, and the truth is neither did the recipients. The concerns of the world's first Christians were far more practical, like how to get financial support for ministry, how to respond to arguments that Gentile converts needed to be circumcised, what to do with the influx of poor widows joining the church, which Roman laws needed to be observed and which could be challenged, and how to foster theological and communal unity between Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women. And even though the Gospels appear before the epistles in the ordering of the New Testament, it's likely the epistles were written first. And their messages revealing the most pressing questions, teachings, debates, and dramas of the early church. Most of these letters were composed by the Apostle Paul or by students writing in his name. Others are attributed to the Apostles Peter, James, Jude, and John. The recipients were new followers of Jesus, most of them Gentiles, while others were written for the general public. And the letters presumed certain cultural norms like patriarchy and patronage and reflect the unique concerns of a minority religious sect in an imperial context within their culture. They expect women to wear head coverings, men to have short hair, and everyone to greet each other with a holy kiss. They wrestle with the age-old age question of how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in the shadow of the empire. And what we must remember, as Adam Hamilton points out, when we read one of Paul's letters or any other New Testament letter, we are reading someone else's mail. Christians often forget this. They read Paul's letters as though he wrote the letter just for them. This works fine most of the time. Paul's instructions, his theological reflections, and his practical concerns are amazingly timeless. But they become most meaningful, and we are least likely to misapply the teaching when we seek to understand why he may have written this or that to a given church. And like so much of Scripture, the epistles were written for us, but not to us. You see, modern readers benefit immensely from seeing how the earliest followers of Jesus applied this, his teachings to their lives and communities, particularly in the midst of outside persecution and internal debate. Just think of how much we owe the Apostle Paul for giving us Galatians 5.22 and 23, which says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I got them all in there. That never stops being true. But we get into trouble when we make instructions for a specific group of people at a specific moment in history as universally binding for all. We see this happen a lot in the New Testament household codes found in various forms in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Peter. Many modern readers assume teachings about wives submitting to their husbands appear exclusively in the pages of Scripture and thus reflect uniquely biblical views about women's roles in the home. But to the people who first heard these letters read aloud in their churches, the words of Peter and Paul would have struck them as both familiar and strange, a sort of Christian remix on a familiar Greco-Roman philosophy that positioned the male head of household as the rightful ruler over his subordinate wives, children, and slaves. 
and by instructing men to love their wives and respect their slaves by telling everyone to submit to one another with Jesus as the ultimate head of the house, the apostles offer correctives to cultural norms without upending them. They challenge new believers to reconsider their relationships with one another now that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill says that this verse is the first egalitarian statement in all of ancient literature. And the plot thickens when we pay attention to some of the recurring characters in the epistles and we see a progression toward more freedom and autonomy for slaves like Onesimus and women like Priscilla and Junia and Lydia. So the question for modern readers then is whether the point of the New Testament household codes is to reinforce the Greco-Roman household codes as God's ideal for all people and all places for all time, or whether the point is to encourage Christians to imitate Jesus in their relationships regardless of the culture or the status in it. And these epistles or letters remind us that wisdom isn't just about knowing what is true. It's it's about knowing when it's true, untangling culturally conditioned assumptions from universal truths in order to figure out how the wisdom of the epistles might apply to us today. That is our task today, to try to interpret Scripture correctly. And truth be told, that's not always easy, simple, or clear. In fact, the presence of hundreds, if not thousands, of Christian denominations makes this point obvious. Many people think that the Bible operates like an owner's manual. You know, to answer questions like, what should I do when I have doubts? That's easy. Go to page 28. What's the right belief about the end times? Go to page 66. How do I fix my kid? Go to page 80 and keep reading to page 888. Have you ever noticed that the Bible is not arranged like that? And people get confused and they get frustrated when they realize that the Bible does not function like a manual. It doesn't because it's not a manual. Fortunately for us, we have been given a wonderful gift, the Holy Spirit, to help us understand the Bible. And we've been given a community. That's you and me and Kevin and Danielle. And with our community, we can spend time wrestling with what the Bible is saying to try to together come up with what does it actually mean today. Friends, we had some sad news two weeks ago. Pastor Mark lost someone very important to him. It was his uncle, Uncle Frank. And from what I read of Mark's posts, he sounded like truly a remarkable man. Only the Bible can speak with authority to situations like this. You see, when people are hurting, when people are in crisis, in a hospital bed, in jail, this is the book that they read. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When a marriage dies or when hope gets lost, God's word has power. God's word accomplished creation. His word brings conviction of the heart. It brings hope in time of despair, power in times of weakness, and guidance in times of darkness. 
The Bible says in Psalms that his word is a lamp unto your feet. It is a light unto your path. It is the story of the Bible that gives your story meaning. And it is worth the time and the effort to read and to study. So I encourage you, listen to it in your car. Whisper it to yourself when you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning. Write down parts of it on sticky notes. Get a Bible app and put it on your phone. Do whatever it takes to become a student of the Bible. I can't say that every time that you read the Bible, that you will leave it happily awestruck and enlightened. But I do believe if you are curious, you will never leave the text without learning something new. And if you are persistent, you might just leave it inspired. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your Bible, your word, and how you used humanity, people, to uh, write it, to tell who you are, to tell what you're like, to give us history of of what a relationship with you uh, has looked like in the past and how we then can relate to it today. Thank you for sending Jesus that we read about in our Bible because we know from the Bible that you are him. You're the same. And from Jesus, we can see the way you love us. You love our friends. You love our neighbors. You love people. And Father, our request today is to help make those words really fill us. Help your words change us. We ask for your spirit to um, be full in us. So that when we are at work, when we're at home, when we're at school, when we're at the park, when we're at the library, that we represent you. That we love others that others may not. That we give encouragement to others that do not. That um, people may find peace because of something that we said. Not because of our efforts, but because of you working through us. We lift the words of the Bible to you in our prayers today. Amen. So I have two main questions for you. Um, I'm presuming that what you just presented isn't always how you've read the Bible. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. So uh, in my, my first question is, for somebody who perhaps is still struggling with that old way of thinking about the Bible, mm-hmm. what would be either... Two or three pieces of, of, of advice for how to move to what you just did here, yeah. um, or how did you get to this particular point of seeing the Bible in a different light? So if somebody's here and they've only kind of grown up under this uh, much more limited way, I, I suppose, mm-hmm. of seeing this, what would you uh, say to them in helping uh, to move one or two steps Seeing it it's way. taken me decades. So, you know, I think it does take time. You're raised a certain way. You believe a certain way. I can't say the Lord's Prayer off the screen because I've got King James in my body. And my, I say that because of the fact that I think my faith and your faith probably as you grow up, that's who God is. That's what you learn. And it's hard to shift. And I think some of the things that make it shift is that I think the more time I was willing to put into reading the Bible to see what it actually says, I could break that false idol, that false belief. I say false because it's not what the Bible even says. It's, 
but it takes time and effort, and it takes a community. It takes a place like Spark where we can talk and wrestle with questions. I mean, in my first year, Peter Enns, I quote Peter Enns, uh, was here. And the idea of question, ha- being, you know, having doubts, and like, I think the thing that bugged me the most, still bugs me, is like, what, the Old Testament, all the killings. Like, uh, and he rocked my world when he came back, and, and this may rock your world when I say it, but his view was, well, maybe God didn't actually tell them to kill the people. That's the other tribes around them, their gods told them to kill the people, and they were just kind of part of that culture. You know, and so that, now that sounds weird, but at least to begin to explore, because the, my God, I don't, I don't see, I struggle with God just wiping out people. That, that was actually one of my other questions is, are, are there still portions of the Bible that disturb you? Because, I mean, this is beautiful and wonderful. You can walk away and say, the entire yeah. thing is uh, beautiful and wonderful, and I love the entire thing. But that, so that was, you actually answered that other question. So my second question, and then we'll, we'll let everybody go. Uh, what if somebody's here and they actually are brand new? They mm-hmm. know nothing. And they've just heard you yeah. share a, a compelling narrative view of this text. But they don't, they don't know where Genesis is. Mm-hmm. They don't know what Gospels are. What, would you, what kind of advice would you give to them if they're just completely unfamiliar? But they're intrigued now and they're interested and they want to learn. What, where would they start? How would they get, get, in, get started? Uh, I think, um, one, read. Read the Bible. I think uh, the Bible by itself, I think, is beautiful. Uh, there are certainly some books that are <laughs> a little bit more challenging, like Exodus. Uh, but New Testament stories are beautiful. Just to understand, I think to start off, I would be figuring out who Jesus is. If, if God is Jesus, what's Jesus like? How did he treat other people? And I think that's a great start. And then you, as you start to spread out into the rest of the Bible, I think being in a community where you can discuss it is absolutely critical. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank Thank you. you. Well done. That was...